0: Daniel, and we thank you so much that we can trust in you and put our confidence in you and know that your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Amen. You can be seated. Amen. Amen. Why do we sing all of these songs that we just sang have so many different aspects of the sovereignty of God, King of Kings forevermore, reign as Lord forevermore. All of these uh, descriptive elements of God's kingly reign over everything. Why do we keep going back over and over and over again to God being sovereign? The answer is because we as believers, when we know that God is in control, we can face anything that we go through in this life knowing that he is sovereign. We can face anything knowing who is in control and specifically that the one who is in control loves us and is working out every single detail in our lives for his greatest glory and for our greatest good. If you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to turn to Daniel chapter 1 with me. Daniel chapter 1. We will see this lived out in the life of Daniel this morning as we study Daniel chapter 1. Everything that we go through in life, we can face it knowing who is in control. Just picture teaching your kids to ride a bike. If you remember that moment when you were a kid, you knew that your dad was holding the seat and was running alongside of you and teaching you how to uh, ride your bike and how to pedal the bike and took off the training wheels and helped you to move forward. And as long as you knew that your dad was behind you holding that seat, you were able to go forward with ease. And that moment that you realized, he's left me, he's behind me, he's uh, not holding the seat anymore, that's when the handlebars start shaking and we fall over. Daniel chapter 1 is a chapter seemingly all about Daniel. We can can so quickly say Daniel's the hero of Daniel chapter 1, and then we can so quickly say, well, what are we supposed to do now that we've seen how Daniel acts, and we just need to be like Daniel? And yes, there are aspects where we do need to be like Daniel, but the deeper issue and the real hero of Daniel chapter 1 is not Daniel. Daniel. If Daniel were here this morning, Daniel would say to you and to me preaching this very sermon, it's not about me, it's about the God who enabled me to live out what you see in Daniel chapter 1. Daniel, you remember, chose six events. That's all it is. Six different events over the course of 70 years as exiles. He just picked six to remind us and to drive home the main point that Yahweh is sovereign over all things and how that should change the way we live our lives. That's the whole point. How God's sovereignty over all things should impact the way that we live our lives today. Chapter 1 is all about God's sovereignty in the lives of his children, and how God arranges the details in their lives for their good and for his glory. And just by way of reminder, I want to uh, go back to what we studied last week. We have seen the first deportation from Judah, the exiles in Judah to Babylon in 605 BC, Nebuchadnezzar and his gods appear to be winning and Yahweh appears to be losing. So how will Yahweh's people respond and react as exiles in Babylon? Let's find out this morning. Daniel chapter 1, verse 3. Then the king, Nebuchadnezzar, ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles, youths in whom was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had ability for serving in the king's court. And he ordered him to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans." And the king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank and appointed that they should be educated three years and at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. Now, among them from the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Then the commander of the officials assigned new names to them. To Daniel, he assigned the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. Father, as we enter into exile with these four young men, take us back to Babylon. Take us back to where they are living. Take us back to what they would have been feeling. Help us to understand what they were thinking Help us to see ourselves in this story in certain ways and then help us to come back to today when we are exiles and strangers in this world. Yes, in a different way than Daniel and his three friends, but still, aliens and strangers. For our citizenship is not here. We are citizens of an eternal kingdom and a kingdom that is made without hands. So teach us, Father, how to live as exiles in a faraway land, but more importantly, teach us the reason why we are to live that way, the motivation for living, knowing that you are in control and that you are working in and through us in every circumstance. Holy Spirit, guide our time this morning. Open our eyes that we'd behold wonderful things from your law and that we'd be conformed to the image of Christ, who is the hero that we look to. We pray in his name, amen. Daniel chapter 1, we are going to cover the entire chapter. I just wanted to read that first section to set up the story. And you, if you've been in church for any amount of time, uh, for a significant amount of time perhaps, you probably know how this story ends. You know how this story goes. But I want to I ask you to do two things. Number one, I want to ask you to pretend like you never knew and never, never heard the end of the story let's read this as if we're reading it for the very first time and enter in with daniel into this narrative and ask ourselves what we have done why did he do what he did what would his friends have been thinking i want us to put ourselves there so pretend like you've never heard the story and then secondly always ask yourself how is god the hero behind these things not why should I be like Daniel? What did Daniel do that, that I should be like in my context, in my community? No, go back to God's sovereignty and how he is the hero. And really, for our time this morning, we're going to see that in three different facets. Three facets of God's sovereignty in the lives of his people. This isn't about Daniel. This is about God working in and through Daniel. So, facet number one, we are going to see in verses three through seven, God's preparation of his people. God's preparation Of his people. Verse 3 The king, that's Nebuchadnezzar, orders Ashpenaz, the chief of the officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal people of the family, the the royal family, and the nobles. Now, this shouldn't shock us. We saw this last week in Isaiah chapter 39, verse 7. That Isaiah had prophesied to Hezekiah, some of your sons and the nobles will be taken into exile. So, some people would even conjecture that Daniel himself was related to Hezekiah. Maybe, perhaps. But we know that the nobles in the royal court in Israel are being handpicked by Nebuchadnezzar to be the royal court in his kingdom. And their youths, verse 4 youths in whom was no defect. They are around 14 to 15 years old. Think of that, a 14 to 15 year old exiled into a foreign land with a king who hates your God. Daniel's going to stand in an amazing way. And they are selected specifically for two things, their looks and their learning. They're selected, hand-picked because of their looks and their learning. They look strong, they look handsome, and, and they've learned a lot. They are, the text says, knowers of knowledge and understanders of knowledge. So they're not just knowers of knowledge, but they know how to use that knowledge. They have wisdom. So they know, and then they also have wisdom. They know how to use that knowledge. But here's the bottom line in this first section. These individuals were prepared for this moment. They were handpicked by Nebuchadnezzar because they were first handpicked by God himself. God prepared them to go into exile and to be in the king's court. They were prepared, whether it was their family lineage, whether it was their upbringing. They were chosen for this moment because of their preparation. And brothers and sisters, that's how God works in the lives of all of his children. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you are a son or a daughter of the Most High God, He is preparing you, He has prepared you, and He has a plan for you and a place for you that you will be able to make an impact because of His preparation in your life today. This is like Esther. You remember when we studied Esther as a church in our small groups and we looked at chapter 1, God is already setting in motion a way to fix a problem that didn't even exist at the time. He brings Esther into the the royal line by being queen so that she can hear Haman's plot to kill the Jews. That hadn't even happened yet. That wasn't even a plot or a thought in his mind. And yet God prepares Esther to solve a problem that hadn't even developed, didn't even exist. So my question for you this morning is, how has God prepared you? How has he? Not... Has he? He has. How? Maybe it's your education. Maybe it's your family lineage. Maybe it's the home that you were raised in. Maybe it's the church you were raised in. Maybe it's the fact that you weren't raised in the church. Maybe it's your testimony. Maybe you've gone through very dark things, and God in his grace has brought you out of those things. Whatever it is, God has prepared you to be used by him wherever you are. As one commentator said, there's always a prepared place for a prepared individual. And so two questions should instantly be screaming in our hearts. Number one, how has God prepared us? And number two, what is he preparing me for? What are you going through in the time that we are living in, in the here and now, that God would say, I I made you for this moment. I prepared you for this moment. I've equipped you for this moment. You're ready for this moment. Well, for Daniel and his three friends, God prepared them for a very specific task, and that task was to go to Babylon and literally to go to their university. They're going to be schooled. This is the University of Babylon. They're now wearing U of B hats, and they're in this university for a very specific reason. You can see they are supposed to... Teach them for three years, middle of verse five, educate them for three years, and then at the end of those three years, they're going to enter into the king's service as servants of the king, knowing everything that the king wants them to know. This is, if you guys know the uh, Extreme Makeover Home Edition, you guys ever seen that? This is Extreme Makeover Babylon Edition. King Nebuchadnezzar wants these four individuals to remember nothing about their heritage, nothing about their upbringing. He wants to wash them completely of everything that they learned, everything that they stand for, and make them through and through Babylonians. So he's going to change their diet. We'll look at that later. He's going to change their education. They're going to be taught the language of the day. They're going to be taught the mythologies, the math, the medicine, the science, omens, spells, astrology. And even in that, which we would look at and say, no, I don't want my kids to go through the University of Babylon, even in that, God's preparing Daniel to help prepare other people who will down the road prepare the wise men who are going to come because the Messiah has been born. Notice the, the absolute total effort to convert them while they're young, isolated, and immersed in their educational system. Just a word, parents, You know that's what the schools are trying to do to our kids. You know that's what the schools are trying to do to our kids. Doesn't mean that we necessarily remove them, but it also doesn't mean that we let them go and just be taught. We need to know that the world, no matter if it's a school or not, the world is trying to squeeze you into their mold, just like Nebuchadnezzar's doing to these four individuals. He's gonna change their diet, he's gonna change their education, And lastly, he's going to change their names. He's going to remove all of the marks that distinguish them as a worshiper of Yahweh. Daniel, his name literally means God is my judge, or don't think of judge with a gavel, but a ruler, someone who rules sovereignly over all things. God is the sovereign ruler. That's what Daniel means. Hananiah means Yahweh is gracious. Mishael means who is like God. And Azariah means Yahweh is my help. Just think about these four individuals together. You literally can share the gospel every time their names are spoken. Think about it. God is my judge. God's the judge. He's the creator. He owns everything. And he has made rules for the way that the world is supposed to run and the way it's supposed to be operated in holiness and righteousness. And we have fallen short. We have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we are hopeless on our own. But guess what? Hananiah, Yahweh is gracious. He does not desire that any would perish, but that all would come to faith and repentance in him. He has made a way for us lawbreakers to be forgiven, to be saved. Who else can do that? Who is like our God? Mishael, no one else can be like that. No one else does that. So how can we enter into this relationship with him? Well, Azariah, he's our help. Yahweh's our help. He's the one who will enable us to be saved, to be sanctified, and to be glorified. Maybe that's why Nebuchadnezzar says, I don't want you named that anymore. Maybe every time they introduce themselves and shake hands, they just share the gospel with everyone they meet. And Nebuchadnezzar says, no more. So he changes their names. Daniel's changed to Belteshazzar. Bel is uh, Lord. It's a reference from Marduk, the God that Nebuchadnezzar would worship, the, the highest God over Babylon means, Belteshazzar means, Bel is the protector. So Daniel means Yahweh is sovereign. Belteshazzar, Marduk is sovereign. Shadrach, at the command of Aku. At the command of Aku. Aku is the Sumerian moon god. And so instead of being Hananiah, Yahweh is gracious. And we get to serve him gracious, a gracious master. No, you are now the servants of Aku, and at the command of Aku, you will do what you're called to do. Mishael, who is like God? Changed to Meshach, who is like Aku. Who is like Yahweh? No, no longer. Who is like the Sumerian moon god? And finally, Azariah, Yahweh is my help? Changed to Abednego servant of Nebo. Nebo was uh, Nabopolassar's god. That's Nebuchadnezzar's dad. It's kind of the second in command to Marduk, and Nebuchadnezzar says, yeah, he's a good god, but I'm better than my dad, and I worship a higher god than my dad, but we'll still do lip service to, Nabu, uh, to, to Nebo and Nabopolassar, the second highest god in Babylon. Well, the bottom line is Nebuchadnezzar wants to erase everything about these individuals. Everything that has to do with Yahweh, he wants to get it Gone. What about you? The world constantly asks you, who are you? And if you don't have an answer for that, they'll tell you. This is who you are. It has nothing to do with God, nothing to do with the Bible. This is who you are. But the world's asking, who are you? And do you answer the way that Daniel... Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah would have answered, sharing the gospel through your answer. I am a servant of God. I am a follower of Jesus. Don't run away from being an exile in Babylon. It'd be very easy to say, no, 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 don't change anything. I don't want to be part of the system. No, don't run away from it. Engage with it. You can be at home in Babylon without becoming a Babylonian. And I think we're going to see that clearly in the book of Daniel. That's what Jesus would say later be in the world, but not of the world. Be in it, but not of it. Because if you become of it, you become a worldly citizen in this fallen system. And as one commentator says, worldly saints don't capture the world, but instead become the world's captives. God has prepared Daniel and his three friends to stand, He's prepared them to be brought into this situation and to stand. Nebuchadnezzar changed their location, their education, their vocation, and even their names. But Nebuchadnezzar could not change their hearts. That leads to point number two. We've seen God's preparation of his people. Now, secondly, God's power in his people. God's power in his people. As all of these changes are occurring... This is verses 8 through 13. Daniel makes up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. Daniel made up his mind. That's what my Bible says. I don't know if your Bible might have a different translation. Very interesting word choice here in Hebrew. That word, that's one word. Made up his mind is one word in Hebrew. And it's the word sin. And that word means to place upon your heart and not veer from it. And that word was used in verse 7a, then the new commander of the officials assigned new names. That's the word, seem, set upon them new names. This isn't going to change. You are a different individual and don't go back to your old way of life. Verse 7b, to Daniel he assigned, that's the same word, set. You could also translate it resolved. He put upon his heart. And so Daniel is wanting us to see they are resolving to change me and I've already resolved that I will not be changed. Because Daniel, even though they are assigning new names, set, setting new names, uh, making up new names, making up their mind to give them new names, Daniel already made up in his mind that he would not defile himself. He had resolved long ago, that he would not defile himself. It all starts in your mind before it ever moves to your actions. Character doesn't change with changing circumstances. Your character is who you are. Your circumstances just bring out your character. Daniel does what he does because all of his convictions are based upon God's word and God's character. By the way, this is what's most important for parents who are raising kids this is what's most important, to cement everything that we do in God's word and God's character for our kids. I'll give you just an example. Sometimes my kids, I'm sure you've gone through this before, my kids will ask me, hey dad, why can't we do this? And I'll say, uh, that's not something that we're going to do. And they'll say, but so-and-so does that, Right? Uh, can we do this? No, 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 we, we're not going to do that. But so-and-so in the church, they do that. They, they let their kids do that. Why, why can't we do that? Whatever it is. It's not a sin issue, obviously, because they let their kids do that. We, we just don't do that. And because we're trying to not be judgmental or have our kids look at other families differently, we just say, no, that's, that's okay for their family to do. We have rules for our family, and this is the way our family operates. And I think that that's a good answer. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it's not. But here's where I'll tell you that it falls short. If that is the only answer that we ever, ever give our kids for anything of why we do what we do or why we don't do what we do, then it's only because of our family doing it this way. So the moment that our kids are outside of our family, well, they can do whatever they want. They're not a part of this family. They don't, they're not seen by mom and dad anymore. They're not looked upon. They're, they can do whatever they want. If the, only, if the bottom of our rules or the way that we live our lives, if the bottom is, well, that's just the way our family works, that's insufficient. That's insufficient. That answer, again, I think that it's necessary in times of gray area issues for sure, license, liberty, all those things. I think it's a sufficient answer. But that answer, if it's across the board, if Daniel's parents had given him that answer over and over and over again, he would never have done what he did here. He would never have said, well, I need to stand up because my family does it this way. No, no, no. My family's back in Israel. I'm in Babylon. Nobody knows. Nobody's going to see. For it to be character, the conviction must be rooted in God so that when family is not there, character remains. Conviction remains. Conviction remains. Don't get me wrong, accountability of church is good, accountability of accountability. family is really good, it's a gift from God, but it's just not sufficient. Think about Joseph with Potiphar's wife, you remember that story. Potiphar's wife uh, asks Joseph to, to sleep with her, tries to do that over and over and over and over again, and Joseph does not say, I can't do that because my mom says it's not right. Joseph doesn't say, I can't do that because my church around me says I shouldn't. You remember Joseph's response. How could I do this wicked thing and displease my God? His family's stripped away. He's in Egypt. Family's in Israel. If you have a relationship with God and you have your convictions and your character cemented in his character and in his word, that's when your convictions will stand. Chuck Swindoll says, in a world filled with people who rebel against the divine king, it's inevitable that believers of all ages will face situations in which their convictions will be challenged. We who are parents need to prepare our children for those occasions by both teaching them God's truth and modeling integrity. And all of us who are Christians need to personally commit ourselves to living God's way, regardless of the temptations to live otherwise. So that's the stand that Daniel and his three friends are taking, it's years in the making. didn't happen overnight. Much is revealed about us in times of crisis like these, and this kind of resolution doesn't come on a whim. It doesn't come overnight. It doesn't well up in the moment. Crisis always shows what was already inside that individual. It doesn't create your convictions as much as just reveal what's already there. Think of how easily these four friends could have looked at each other behind closed doors, whispering. We're a long way from Jerusalem. Things are different now. Times have changed. We can't be traditional anymore. We need to be up with the times and progressive. We need to adapt. Those old things don't matter as much as they used to. No, they, they didn't say any of those things. Alive and well with resolution in their heart, They swam upstream as exiles in Babylon. I love the way one commentator says it. It takes a living fish to swim upstream. Dead fish just float with the current. They're swimming upstream. These kinds of people are fashioned. They're made. They don't just appear. So Daniel and his friends, with conviction based on God's word and God's character, stand up and say, we can't do that. Now, what is it that they can't do? They're resolved in their heart and in their mind not to defile themselves, but specifically not to defile themselves with the choice food, verse 8, or with the wine that the king drank and was offering them to drink. So listen to this. They're relocated, they're reeducated, they're renamed, but when it comes to their diet, they say no, that's too far. Daniel's fine being in the school of pagans, He's fine letting his name be changed to a pagan name, but he draws the line at food. Does anybody else think that this is weird? I I look at this and I think, if I was Daniel, I would have drawn the line at, no, that's not my name. You're not changing my name. Call me all you want, but I'm Daniel. He says, fine, I'll take that name. Look at how, I think that this is the point of what Daniel's teaching it doesn't have to be a crisis like we're going to see in chapter 3, bow down to a, a golden statue or else you're going to be killed, stop praying or else you're going to be thrown in the lion's den. Just what's on the menu. It's just what's on the menu. And that's where Daniel and his friends say, we don't, we don't do that. That's too far. That's crossing the line. And that's exactly how life works. Before you ever get to the statue, the golden statue, before you ever get to praying, or else you're going to be throwing the lions then. It's subtle, small, little choices, far more subtle. Dale Ralph Davis says, Sometimes smaller commitments made along the way fortify faith to plant its feet when it has to meet more severe threats. So before we get to chapter 3 and chapter 6, we are in chapter 1. A small threat, a subtle threat, seemingly insignificant threat, where they say... We have to draw the line. Jim Boyce says it this way. It's a small thing, but that's the point. It's in the small things that great victories are won. This is where decisions to live a holy life are made, not in the big things, though they come if the little things are neglected, but just in everyday details of life. If you want your life to count, if you want to make a difference for the glory of God and the kingdom of God then you need to see all these little moments as big deals. You can't be impatient. So many younger people are impatient and undisciplined and are tempted to let the little things slide. Let's move on to the bigger and better things. Not Daniel, not his three friends. They're wholly given to the Lord now, which is essential to prepare you for future service. So, seems like a strange place to draw the line. Why? Why is he drawing the line here? Let's try and get in his mind. The Old Testament, one of the distinguishing features of God's people was the rules that they followed about what they would and would not eat. So, number one, probably this is a dietary issue. The dietary laws uh, said that the food that Nebuchadnezzar is offering them doesn't meet the standards of the Mosaic Law. That's one possibility. King Nebuchadnezzar, we know, ate pork, ate horse, God's people weren't allowed to do that. It was also prepared incorrectly. They didn't drain all the blood. God's people weren't allowed to eat that. But Daniel also says, I can't eat what you eat or drink what you're drinking. And there was nothing in the Old Testament that said you couldn't partake of wine, just that you couldn't get drunk. And he says, I'm not going to eat the choice food or the wine. So I think it probably goes beyond dietary issues. It's not less than, but I think it's more than. I also think, potentially, it was food that was offered to idols. It was food that was dedicated to idols. This was food that was offered to the idols and then given to the nobility in Babylon. But again, I think it's more than that because what would guarantee that the vegetables, that Daniel says, we'll eat those instead, what's to guarantee that those aren't going to be offered to the idols as well? Maybe though I believe the dietary issue and the food being offered to idols, those are issues, maybe maybe the foundational issue is as simple as we've allowed it to go this far and this is the last straw. There's a place at which you say, I've tried to bend, I've tried to bend, I've tried to bend, but I can't do that. If Babylon gets into us, which they're trying desperately to do, then the show's over. There's real danger here. Maybe Daniel turns to his friends and says, do you see what they're doing to us? We could get sucked up into this system. We have to draw the line, and I think this is the place to draw the line. We need to preserve some distinctiveness. We can't be squeezed into the mold that Babylon is trying to squeeze us into. My question to us this morning is, where are you being squeezed by this world? It's, again, not a question of are you it's how are you romans chapter 12 i urge you beloved brethren by the mercies of god present your bodies as living sacrifices holy and acceptable to the lord which is your pleasing act of worship then paul says in romans chapter 12 verse 2 do not be conformed to this world that word in greek is pressed into the mold of this world Every day, every second you're alive, the world is pressing you into their mold. They're fighting with everything that they've got through billboards and, and newspapers and advertisement on television and movies and all the worldviews that those things preach. The world is trying to push you into their mold and say, be like us. And there are going to be places where we can say, yeah, you can try to rename us. That's fine. We'll go along with that. You, you can do that. You can, we'll, we'll be in your system. We'll be in your educational. That's okay. But there's going to be places that we say we got to draw the line because we will not be pressed into the mold of this world. How's the world pressing you? How are you being pressed? How is America pressing an evil agenda and a worldly system into your heart? Have you bought into the American dream? Have you bought into, I'm just going to try and live it up for myself? It's even crept into the church and the prosperity gospel. Daniel says, no, we can't defile ourselves. We can't defile ourselves. So what does he do? Verse 8, he seeks permission from the commander, the officials, it's Ashpenaz, that he might not defile himself. Can I not do that? Can we please not do that? Now, again, don't read ahead. Daniel goes to Ashpenaz, a 14 or 15-year-old young man, and says, can we please not do that? What do you expect the next verse to say? No, you're my slave. You do what I tell you or I will kill you. What does the next verse say? Now God gave Daniel. Same exact words that were used in verse 2. The Lord gave Jehoiakim. God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. Ashpenaz shows up. Yeah, Daniel, what do you want? Daniel says, we've done everything that you've asked us to do. We can't do this one thing. And instead of Ashpenaz laughing and saying, how dare you question the king? He says, okay, I'll hear you on this because God gave favor. But don't read ahead. What do you expect to come next? God granted favor, so what do you expect to come next? So Ashpenaz says, okay, fine by me. Let's go ahead and do it your way. What does it say? Verse 10, Ashpenaz says to Daniel, I'm afraid of Nebuchadnezzar. He's appointed your food and your drink. Why should he see your faces looking more haggard than the youths who are your own age? Then you would make me forfeit my head to the king, Daniel, I like you, I hate your plan, that's what he's saying, I don't want my head chopped off, I don't like this plan, this is shocking to me as I read, because if you've never read this story before, and you come to verse 9, where it says God gives Daniel favor, you expect, and everything goes well, but brothers and sisters, we know that God gives grace sometimes by handing us a trial on a silver platter. God says, here's some grace, and it's going to be hard. Here's some some grace. God gives grace, but it doesn't mean that it goes Daniel's way. And as we've said before, and I love this quote, and it's probably one of the main theme quotes from this book, Dale Ralph Davis says, Sometimes God may allow hardships to reach us because he wants his mercy to reach beyond us. So Ashpenaz says, I don't like that plan. <laughs> I don't want to die. Now, what does Daniel do? I love this. Remember, we said two weeks ago when we first began the book of Daniel we'll, we will see a window from this book into how to speak to governing authorities who are asking us to do things that we don't like, that we can't do. Daniel has conviction, but he also has wisdom. And conviction and wisdom, or conviction and humility, those are such a rare combination. Such a rare combination to have conviction and humility. Daniel doesn't throw a fit. He doesn't get angry at Babylon, or their heavy handedness, or their governmental overreach. He simply looks at the next possible step to see where it might land him. It seems like there's only two options. Ashpenaz either let us not eat this, or Ashpenaz dies. He dies by that potential, or we defile ourselves by doing what you're asking us. Two potentials, two options. Daniel says there's a third option in there. We don't have to get extreme. There's a third option in there. Daniel and his three friends are not being a, nu- a nuisance, they're not being obnoxious. I would even say they're not being defiant. They're being persuasive. They're being kind, humble, and persuasive. He says, Can we we put this to the test? He gives options. He doesn't say, No, end of story. He says, Ashpenaz, what about this? I totally get it. I don't want you to die. What about a third option? What about an option? Can we do this instead? Daniel is not one of those people who believe, quote, firmness of principle always involves acting stubborn and defiant. You know those people, right? If I have conviction, I need you to know that I have conviction, and the way that I let you know I have conviction is I'm stubborn and defiant. You would never have guessed that from Daniel. He's respectful. What does he he say? Verse 11. Daniel said to the overseer, who the commander of the officials had appointed, over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants. So respectful, we are your servants, we're your slaves. Can I give you a third option? What about you test us for 10 days? Let us be given some vegetables to eat, some water to drink. Let our appearance be observed in in your presence, in the appearance of the youths who are eating the king's choice food. And deal with your servants according to what you see. Think of how hard this decision would have been for Daniel. The king gave the order so they could be punished for him asking. They won't be advanced in the government if King Nebuchadnezzar doesn't like what they're doing. This is probably the best food that there is that they're rejecting. They're 900 miles away from home and no one back home would ever know what they're going to do. But again, Daniel's conviction Produces this courage. Courage is based on conviction, and conviction is based on character, and character is rooted in a rock solid confidence of God's sovereignty. That's why I say God is empowering Daniel to do these things. God's the one who's behind all of this. Daniel says, Will you test us? We'll eat vegetables. Vegetables, literally in the Hebrew, it's a word that means that which grows from seeds sown. So it also includes fruits and grains and bread made from the grain. So it's not just vegetables. There's other things that are involved in being able to eat and on the menu. And so he says, can we eat that and not the king's choice food? So option one, eat the king's choice food and defile yourself. Option two, don't eat the king's choice food and Ashpenaz dies because we look terrible. So Daniel says, let's try a third gracious, humble. Let's try a third. And, verse 14, Ashpenaz listens to them and tests them for ten days. And that leads us to the third principle of God's sovereignty in the life of Daniel and his three friends. Number one, God prepares his people. Number two, God gives power to his people. And number three, God preserves his people. This is God's preservation of his people. This is verse 14 through the end of the chapter. God preserves his people. He listens for 10 days, or he listens to them and tests them for 10 days. And at the end of the 10 days, their appearance seemed better and they were fatter than all of the youths who had been eating the king's choice food. So Ashpenaz continues to withhold their choice food and the wine that they were to drink and keeps giving them the vegetables and everything else that comes with it. Now, just one side comment. This does not mean. And I, I know maybe even in this room there are people who've gone through what's commonly referred to as the Daniel fast. I, I, I don't want to uh, be offensive or anything. I, I don't. I don't think that that's necessary according to this passage. If you've done that for the sake of discipline, good on you totally fine to do, but if you think that this passage is prescribing a sort of Daniel fast, I don't think that's what this passage is doing, namely because the food that we're eating today isn't being offered to idols, the food that we're eating today isn't contradicting the Mosaic Law, we're okay, we're not under the dietary restrictions of the Old Testament code anymore, so we're okay. So I don't think we need to live out the Daniel fast. Again, if you want to, go ahead, but I don't think that we need to. I think we could point to Jesus and the apostles because they all ate meat. They didn't just eat vegetables. Praise the Lord. <laughs> I'm very, very thankful. <laughs> I'm glad I would not survive doing the Daniel fast. Also, the Daniel fast here was for 10 days, the test for 10 days, not for uh, a month as some people do it. And I don't think that they are healthier or fatter because of the food on its own. I think that they're healthier and because God preserves his people. God gave, right? We've seen that over and over and over again. God is giving them grace. They entrusted themselves to God and God said in his grace, here, I'll preserve you. Dale Ralph Davis says, how kind God is to lay the cushions of his compassion amid the harshest of our circumstances. Verse 16, Ashpenaz sees that they are growing in strength. So he continues to do this. Uh, These are all participles. Uh, Kept giving them vegetables. Kept doing these things. Kept taking away, kept giving. And then as Ashpenaz is doing that on a temporal level, on a physical level, verse 17, as for the four youths, God gave them. There it is again, four times in this chapter. God gave them. God gave them what? Knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. And at the end of the days in which the king had specified for presenting them, the commander of the officials, that was that uh, three-year period, the commander of the officials presented them before Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and out of them all, not one was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's personal service. I love that. Daniel's writing this, and he says, by the way, remember our names. It's Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, because God's our judge. God gives grace. No one's like him, and we are graciously helped by him in everything that we do. So they enter the king's personal service. And as for, verse 20, every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and conjurers who are in his realm. Ten times better. Some of your translations, if it's an older one, will say ten hands better. Ten hands. So I have two hands. So five of me would have ten hands and so what this is saying is one of Daniel is better than five other people. He's better. Why? Because God gave it. Notice notice Daniel's reputation here. I love this. Number 1, Daniel was not defiant. He was gracious, he was humble, he's a man of conviction, and he stands for what he believes in, but he does so in such a way that it's graciously lived out, wisely lived out, humbly lived out, such that when we get to here at the end of three years, Daniel is not known for what he's against. Oh yeah, you're that Daniel guy who said he would not obey the king's order of eating the food that I asked. No, he's known for what he's for. He's known for what he does well. He's known for the good things that he does in righteousness because God's empowering him to do that. Today, we say that our kids are doing well as long as they're, quote, staying out of trouble, right? As long as they're not doing bad things, we're doing okay. (laughs) Let's be honest. How low of an expectation is that, right? As long as our kids just aren't doing bad things, we're doing good. You can't get much lower than that. No, you have to do Good things. What about what they're known for? What about the good that they do? If your definition of character is just staying out of trouble, then you can never prove character because you have nothing to do in order to establish it. You have to have good deeds to prove that you have good character. And I love the ending of this chapter because it tells us that competency matters because the Christian life is a life of action. Daniel excelled in his schooling even when he's learning things that aren't true. A person with godly resolve, who lives in accordance with God's ways, is actually the one who is going to be most useful in the world. And they are. They're competent. They're better. They're better than the magicians and the conjurers. Magicians are engravers who would claim to have cultic knowledge and write it all down. Conjurers were communicators with the dead, with spirits. (laughs) They're better than all of it. heres I think what Daniel wants us to to feel in this moment after we've gone through his story in chapter 1? What amusing irony. At the beginning of chapter 1, the Jews are subjugated in Babylon, and at the end of chapter 1, the Jews are better than the Babylonians. Hey, we're your slaves, and we're better than you. The losers have, by the twists of God's providence, become the winners. And God is working for the Babylonians' good through the Jews. Reminds me of 2 Kings chapter 5. Remember, Naaman is an Aramean general, and he captures a city in Israel and enslaves a, a little Jewish girl. And then Naaman has leprosy. So we, we we would say the enslavement of that little Jewish girl, the kidnapping of that little Jewish girl is a very bad thing. And yet God's preparing her. To bring the good news of Yahweh to Naaman. Remember, Naaman gets leprosy, and the servant girl says, You should talk to Elisha, the prophet of Yahweh. He can heal you. Yahweh can heal you. You remember the rest of the story. Naaman gets healed. God's doing that here. God is giving grace to the Babylonians, even amidst their despicable act of exiling and enslaving the Jews. It's not the end of the chapter, verse 21. It's the end of that story, but the end of the chapter is in verse 21. And Daniel continued, or literally was until, the first year of Cyrus the king. This seems like such a strange verse, because we fast forward to 539 BC. So we were in 605 BC, three years later we were in 602 BC, and now we fast forwarded all the way to 539 BC, which is the first year of the reign of Cyrus. Why does Daniel put this in there? We've just zoomed in on this one story of the dietary issues. And then Daniel pulls back and fast-forwards over 70 years. Why? Because if Cyrus is in control, that means Nebuchadnezzar is dead. His empire has failed, he has fallen. But not Daniel, he's still there. Kingdoms rise, as we sang earlier, and kingdoms fall, but God's people will always be preserved. Dale Ralph Davis says, In verse 21, Babylon, the hairy-chested macho brute of the world, has dropped with a thud into the mausoleum of history, while fragile little Daniel, servant of the Most High God, is still on his feet. Always remember this. The servants of God will simply and forever always out endure every kingdom of this age. Amen? Every single kingdom. So, what do we do with this chapter? What do we do? Number one, three points of application based off of those three points. Since God prepares his people, empowers his people, and preserves his people... Number one, give yourself wholeheartedly to study, to learn, to grow, to mature, to be useful, knowing that it's God who is preparing you now for something yet to come. If you know God's preparing you, then get prepared. Get ready. Maybe it's as simple as start going through the ACBC training because you don't know who's going to come alongside you to say, can you help me with this one area of counseling? And boom, you've been studying because you've read a book and you've learned something and you've watched a DVD on something. Study the scriptures. Get involved in Bible studies. Study the word of God. Go out doing evangelism. There are so many different ways that we can get prepared, but do it. Get prepared knowing that God's the one who's doing that work in and through you. Ask yourself, how's your character? Is it rooted in God? How's your content? Is it rooted in the Bible? How's your competency? Are you able to live these things out? in an excellent manner, like Daniel and his three friends. And who are your companions? I don't think Daniel would have done this on his own. I think he needed the three friends around him to spiritually encourage him. So where's your character, content, competency, and companions? Give yourself wholeheartedly to preparation now for what God would bring along in the future. Number two, live unafraid and unashamed, with gracious resolve, knowing that it is God who empowers his people. Live unashamed and unafraid, no matter what happens. Because God gives you the power. God gives you the strength. The crises that we will go through will reveal what's inside of us. Don't make two assumptions. Don't assume you're going to stand firm in these crises. And also don't assume that you're going to give in. Resolve now. Do it with courageous resolution. You have to resolve in your heart now that you're going to please God no matter the cost. You have to make the decisions now on the things that are going on around you to defile you. But do it also with courageous resolution like Daniel don't be obnoxious don't be uh, purposely mean rude or defiant do it with gracious resolve know that there are different lines that all of us draw because of our conscience there's going to be different places there's black and white issues and then there's gray area issues and we need to be gracious with one another when it comes to matters of conscience and finally number three live with biblical optimism knowing that God always preserves his people Live with biblical optimism, knowing that God always preserves his people. I say biblical optimism because this doesn't mean that things are always going to go easy. In fact, we're given so many promises in the Bible that things will be hard for believers and they're going to get harder. But biblical optimism means that through the hard times, nothing will ever be able to snatch you from the Father's hand because you're preserved safe and sound by the eternal work of our triune God. They might kill you, but not a hair on your head will be destroyed. I love how Jesus says that. So, live these truths out, but do so knowing that it's God who is the one who's at work in and through you. The reality is, we will only be like Daniel if we trust in Daniel's God. Father, thank you so much for your word this morning. We are so grateful for a study in the character of a man and his three friends who trust you, who love you, and with a rock-solid assurance and confidence in your sovereign goodness in their lives. They live differently because of it. You prepared them for that moment. You empowered them in that moment. And you preserved them through that moment, just like you will do for all of us who trust in you. Help us to trust in you now. We pray in your name. Amen. Please stand with us if you would.